All right, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to see in Romans 8 verses 2 through 4 what is now true about Christians. What is now true about Christians who are not condemned by God for their sin, but free in Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I just want to think about this before uh, we really dive in. What if, you know, we were put in charge of coming up with a plan to save sinful humanity, okay? We were just put in charge of coming up with a rescue plan to save humanity from sin. I think here's how it would probably go. We would think of some, you know, sort of a sly espionage uh, plan, tricky plan to fool the enemy, and here's how we would do it. We would say, I know, we'll, we'll come up with a, all sorts of lists of do's and don'ts, of, of rules and regulations that, that we have to follow so that we can be right with God, so that we can be rescued from sin. Or we would just deny that humanity has a sin problem altogether. So, you know, it doesn't exist, there's not a problem, and, and the reason I know that this is what would happen is because we've been seeing proof of that for thousands of years, where, where mankind will say, you know, just do this, this, and this, and, and act this way, and do that, and you'll be right with God, or actually, you don't even need, you don't need a savior, because you're not really a sinner, and so it's a good thing, I, I really believe it's a good thing that God was in charge of the plan to rescue fallen humanity, and he didn't make us work for it, and he didn't deny that there was a problem. And what he did was, was play smash mouth with the devil, okay? He basically hit it head on, and he, he came up with a simple, elaborate, sovereign, genius plan, and the plan was this. God condemned sin by condemning Christ in our place. God condemned sin by condemning Christ for our sin so that we would be able to freely serve him uncondemned. And what we're going to look at today is, so what's true about us now because of that? So if you're able, I want you to stand with me. I'm going to read God's word. And if you're new to grace, we focus very intently uh, our times in the Word on who God is and what He has said. And our goal is always to glorify God as we hear the Word and do the Word. And it is God's inerrant and infallible and inspired Word. And I'm going to read, I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, uh, that you would have your way in our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word, and Lord, that you would 
you would do what is necessary in, in our hearts so that we would be aligned with you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So I hope you're enjoying Romans with me. Romans is, is awesome. It's the most comprehensive and, and categorically beautiful explanation and celebration of gospel truth in Scripture. And it is deeply personal. It is deeply personal and it's, it's an exciting celebration of gospel truth and how God changes our hearts and how the gospel changes our hearts. And Paul was writing to the church in Rome. He was writing to this, this young church full of people of all ages, but young believers, right? Uh, baby Christians. And he's writing to them around AD 57. It's during his third missionary journey and probably from Corinth, Greece. And, and the church... He had never met before. He hadn't met these people. And so he's writing to a group that he really, really wanted to see face-to-face, but had never met them face-to-face. And he didn't want them to just learn the gospel. Like, he didn't just want them to know the gospel facts. What he wanted them to do was love Jesus and live the gospel. This is how we should be thinking about this, not like, hey, let's, let's try to figure out Romans so we can rattle it off to someone and tell someone what Romans is all about. What you want to do is love Jesus because he first loved you, and you want to live this truth. And last week we saw this. Chapter 8 begins with this huge statement in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is is awesome news, and it's it's news that's impossible without God and his his grace at work. We deserve condemnation. Our sins separate us from God, but Christ brings us near. Christ reconciles us to God. This is the truth about God people who have come to faith in Christ, who have trusted in his finished work on the cross, where he took their penalty and died for their sins and was buried and was risen on the third day and is coming back. We are saved by grace through faith, right? And it's like this. Just just think of this for just a moment, okay? God, if you're a believer, God chose you before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in. God chose you, and and then in his perfect timing, he he drew you to himself in in mercy and in grace, and and he opened your heart to believe the gospel message and to turn from your sins and to want to please God with your whole heart, that you want Christ to rule in your heart. This is what is true about believers. You want Christ to rule in your heart, and what you see happen is that God changes your heart by his spirit, through his word, day by day, year by year. And there's no condemnation. Condemnation is being sentenced to hell. Condemnation exists because sin separates us from God. Uh, The Greek word we looked at last week, katakrima, means the punishment following the sentence. It's the courtroom language of a criminal uh, being condemned to death for his crimes. It's the penalty that the verdict demands. And and it's the opposite 
of justification. So if you're a Christian today, you've been justified, been made right. Well, condemnation is the opposite of that. So anyone who's not in Christ is under condemnation because they don't have justification. No condemnation then for a believer. If you're not condemned, you're justified. You're found innocent of accusation. No sentence inflicted on you. Uh, No guilty verdict found. So the promise we saw in verse 1, no condemnation. The people to whom it is applied is all who are justified, all who have been made right with God through faith in Christ. And then the rest of the chapter, it spells out the process of life change as a result. The process of life change by the Spirit of God. And in this process, as things unfold and and you just think about your own life and you think about uh, growing in Christ and you think about the kind of questions you ask, I think there are, are three heartfelt questions that every believer ends up asking. And the questions are anchored in God's magnificent grace, poured out on us in Christ. Um, the answers come in, in truths right, there, right here in Scripture uh, that are to be relished, like really enjoyed and rejoiced in like you just your heart thrills when you get the answer and you respond to the truth and and the awesome thing is and the truth that you respond to is rooted in the authoritative unchanging perfect uh, sufficient word of god and this is what you can know with assurance that that the, the bible the 66 books of the bible the old and new testaments god's word inspired by the Holy Spirit, is sufficient. It's authoritative. It's unchanging. But there's these questions that come up, and and, and every believer ends up asking them one way or another. The first question is, now that I am no longer condemned, what is true about me? This is what we're going to look at today. Another question is, how does my faith in Christ lead to change in my life? We'll look at that in subsequent weeks. It's going to get spelled out in Romans 8. The third question is, how do I really know if I have eternal life? That also gets spelled out in Romans chapter 8. And the answers point to the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, how we have life from and live by the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to look at just verses 2 through 4 of Romans 8 and answering that, that first question. We'll look at those other questions in coming weeks, but that first question, now that I am no longer condemned What is true about me? In this passage, I see three unchanging truths that emerge that that are foundational for us. The first is this. We have been freed from slavery to sin. That's the first thing. We have been freed from slavery to sin. And the second thing is we have been died for. We have been died for. And third, we can now obey God. We can now obey God, all because of the Spirit of God. So those three unchanging truths, we've been freed from slavery to sin, we have been died for, and we can now obey God. And let's focus in, as we begin, on verse 2, and the idea that we have been freed from slavery to sin. Because verse 2 is saying this, that now believers are set free from the law of sin and death. And so we need to look at that and go, what's the law of sin and death? And we've been set free, we've been set free by the law of the spirit of life. What's the law of the spirit of life? 
So let's look at it. Verse two begins with the word for. For, so it's because. Now the reason for there's no condemnation, here's the reason. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let's look at the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit of life indicates the Holy Spirit's work and the Holy Spirit's work is giving life. The Holy Spirit is the author and the giver of life. And, and you even see this right here in Romans 8, in verse 6. You see that the, the result of the Spirit's presence in a believer's life is life and peace. Life and peace. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 it tells us that we're ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. You think back in the Old Testament, I think about Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 37, and this valley of dry bones, and the breath of the Lord uh, comes upon them, and they, and they come back to life, and it's the idea that God's Spirit produces life. In fact, in Ezekiel 37 verse 14, God says, I'm going to put my Spirit within you, and and I will do that. I have spoken. I will do that, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And Paul saw that prophecy of Ezekiel uh, fulfilled in the gospel. Uh, the resurrection was now assured for believers. In fact, Romans 8, 10, and 11. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. If you're a believer today, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And the spirit has replaced the law that produced sin and death with a new law that produces life, a, a new idea. It's, it, it, Romans 3.27 told us what it is. It's called the law of faith. The law of faith. It's the gospel message. We are set free in Christ because the Spirit gives life. And, and this is kind of an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit, who inspired the Word, who spoke the Word, only referenced himself one time in all of Romans chapters one through seven. But then you get to chapter eight, 20 times, 20 times. The Spirit of God. Now Romans eight, and I keep saying this, is connected to Romans six and seven, okay? It's connected. Uh, chapter six identifies believers with Christ, that Christ is our representative in terms of death to sin. Chapter seven identifies believers with Christ as our representative in terms of death to the law. But then you get to chapter 8, and you're like, okay, now it's all, it's all making sense. The Spirit kills sin. The Spirit empowers us to obey God, because the truth you see in chapter 8 is, without the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are slaves to indwelling sin. And Romans 8 gives us this amazing picture of how Jesus delivers us, and then continues to deliver us, from indwelling sin by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Do you remember in, in chapter 7, Paul is you know, saying, look, I do the thing I hate. I'm a believer, but I do the thing I hate. And then Paul says, 
I can't do the good I want to do. You know how he says that? And, and this is like our experience in life. We end up doing things that we hate and we end up not being able to do the good that we actually want to do and, and we're frustrated. And, and this is what's good about this. This is this tension that you feel even is this. It's good. It keeps you from, from error. It keeps you from legalism, which will tell you, uh, well, real Christians don't really struggle with sin anymore. You know, good Christians don't struggle with sin. Okay, that's wrong. Or license that says, well, real Christians just can't help sinning. Come on, give us a break. And aren't you glad Romans 7 isn't the last word on the matter, okay? Um, the Spirit was in, in inspiring all of this and didn't put chapters and verses in. It was a flowing stream of, of the Word of God. And, and Romans 7 doesn't say everything there is to say about the Christian life. The Bible didn't end at the end of Romans 7. It just keeps on going. And what Romans 8 shows us, which is so amazing, is how new life in Christ is to be lived according to the Spirit, by the Spirit, in the Spirit. So still in verse 2, go back to verse 2, look at verse 2 again. It says that the Spirit of, of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And you notice that word set free, set you free. That's past tense. That's very important, kind of a big deal here. Uh, Set free is past tense. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free already. You're already set free. You're not fighting for your freedom. You're not fighting for your freedom. You, You are standing in the freedom you already have. You need to know this. You need to know. You're not fighting for your freedom in Christ. You're standing in the freedom Christ gave you. You are freed from slavery to sin. Now, you didn't come up with some elaborate plan to make this happen. You know, we didn't come up with this elaborate, you know, Shawshank Redemption type plan, escape plan. We were helpless. We were rescued with precious blood. In fact, you know, you go on in the New Testament and Paul is talking to uh, the Galatian Christians And you get to chapter 5 in Galatians, and he's been, you know, telling them how wrong they are about the way they've thought about a lot of things. And he says this in chapter 5, verse 1 in Galatians, for it was for freedom that Christ set you free. So don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put yourself under uh, the slavery of a list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs and rules and regulations. The Christian is free in Christ, and obviously we're going to see our freedom in its fullest measure in the future. Romans 8, at the, near the end, gets more to that. But the idea for Christian right now, if you're a believer right now, here's the truth about you. You have freedom because sin no longer has dominion over your life. It doesn't, no longer has lordship over you. You don't have to obey sin. You choose to, but you don't have to. See, Jesus has lordship over your life. You, you can't serve two masters. Uh, and and, and this, this is true about us. We, we're not going to have sin, sinless perfection here. The moment you became a believer, you didn't become sinlessly perfect, but you're also not supposed to say, well, hey, I'm going to sin anyway. I'm forgiven. That's not the way God wants us to be. It's not the, the heart God wants us to have. You're not going to have sinless perfection, but 
Christ is sinless and he is perfect. And so as the spirit works in you, you're gonna see remnants of sin. You're gonna have flare-ups. You're gonna hate it. But you're gonna know that you've been regenerated, that you actually have new life in Christ. And you can actually choose not to sin because you have the power of the spirit in you. You have the spirit in you. And so you can make conscious choices. You can actually cease and desist from doing the selfish thing. You can actually say no to yourself. Jesus says deny yourself. And you can say yes to God's best. You, you can do this because you are now in Christ. Okay? You, are, you are united with Christ. Look at that, look at that verse. Look at that verse, verse two. We're still in verse two. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. This is one of the biggest phrases in the New Testament. And it's so funny because a lot of people will you know, close their letters with the words in Christ. And people might think, oh, you're using the, you know, the stock Christianese. No, actually, you're speaking Bible when you put in Christ. In Christ is, is very, very important. It's telling us that our status is rooted in Christ with Jesus. It is a place of security. It is a place of safety in God's loving care. So you want to know and understand in Christ. In fact, I will go as far as to say, if you can understand and grasp what in Christ means, you'll understand your freedom in Christ. And if you misunderstand what in Christ means, you won't understand your freedom in Christ. In Christ is a descriptive term that refers to every Christian, every true Christian. To be in Christ is to be united with him in his death and resurrection. It is to trust in him. It is to be alive in Christ. It is, it is to have a relationship with Jesus that is eternally secure. It is to have your identity rooted in Christ and, and reoriented in Christ and, and renewed in Christ. It, and, and when you look at the New Testament, you read through Paul's writings. That phrase, in Christ, is his favorite way to refer to our union with Christ. I want you to go over to Ephesians 1 with me because Ephesians 1 really spells it out clearly and just over and over again what it means to be in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and I'll kind of bounce you through verses 3 through 14. We'll just kind of hop around down through that passage but start at verse 3. That God has blessed us in Christ and keep noticing in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse four, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, verse five, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, in your Bible, hopefully beloved is capitalized, capital B there. That's in Christ. Now, if you get tired of you know, uh, signing your letters with in Christ, just say in the beloved then, okay? In him, look at verse seven. In him, in Christ, in the beloved. He is bl- they, we have been blessed in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. That's because of Christ. We have 
and it's all because of the riches of his grace, which has been lavished upon us. I think of just like, you know, spreading cream cheese frosting on a, on a carrot cake or something, just lavished upon. And look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. So there's a future for the believer. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. You see this over and over again. We exist to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. Look at verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this is your identity in Christ if you're a believer. So in Christ, in Christ you are free. You are exonerated. You are uh, declared not guilty even though you're totally guilty. Isn't that crazy? You're declared not guilty even though you're totally guilty. And that's not fair, is it? It's not fair. It's merciful. It's gracious. And, and so when you think about your uncondemned status, you're like, wow, if, if I'm uncondemned by God, it's not because of anything about me. It's all about Jesus. Wow, if I'm uncondemned by God, it's because God chose to show me mercy uh, and then he continues to, to choose to overlook my self-seeking ways and my signature sins. And, and if I'm uncondemned by God, it's not because I'm a truth seeker. It's because the truth sought me, found me. And so the first thing you see about yourself in Christ as a result of not being condemned is you've been set free by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God. Move on to verse 3, and, and you see you were died for. You were died for. Christ was condemned for you in your place. Verse 3 is talking about Christ's sacrificial substitutionary work, the legal basis for your freedom, past, present, and future. And we see that the Spirit's work in sanctifying is grounded in justification. Look at verse 3. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. This is so, such good news for us. What could the law not do? The law could not make sinners free from the penalty. The law could not make sinners righteous. The, the law couldn't deliver you from sin. And so in Acts, the apostles are preaching, and in Acts chapter 13, and they're preaching Christ, and they said, through Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, speaking to a group that, that needs Christ. And, and then they say this, by him, by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Galatians 3.10 tells us, everyone who relies on works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. But you notice, it says that the law was weakened. It was weakened by the flesh because of the corruption of unregenerate man, because of our sin. The law could not produce righteousness, but God did. And how did God do it? By sending his own son. Now that's an amazing statement. By sending his own son. This is amazing. That the first person of the Trinity, 
God the Father sent the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. You've got this, the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ there. Shades of Psalm 2, verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. But he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Very specific. Galatians 4, 4 tells us when the fullness of the time came, when the, when the opportune time came, when the right time came that God had ordained, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Philippians 2 tells us that although he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant born in the likeness of men. So God sent his son, God the Son was sent. Why was he sent? For sin. Look at that, look at verse three. Sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. That's referring to a sin offering. He was sent as a sin offering, as a propitiatory sacrifice, if you will, as a mercy sacrifice. He was the sin offering. And so in that sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned Christ for our sin. So God's condemnation was fully poured out on sinless Christ. I don't think there's any more beautiful place in the Bible that explains this in such a beautiful and poetic way, but Isaiah 53, verses four through six, where it says, surely he himself bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him, on him, was the chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God condemned sin in the flesh. Condemned here refers to the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, judgment against sin went on Christ. Dismantling sin's dominion over God's people. And so if you're a believer, sin no longer has any rights over you. Sin no longer has any rights over you. You're not immune to sin, but you're freed from captivity to it. You don't have to obey sin. Romans 7 tells us we are still wrestling in dwelling sin. If you're not a believer, you, you might be saying, thinking now, well, you know, I, I'm not a sinner. And, and I can understand that kind of thinking because before I was a Christian, I didn't think I was either. I thought I was just you know, not as bad in my mind as other people who were the true sinners. But what is sin? You know, we talk about sin right here in this, in this verse three. It says that for sin, God condemned sin. So as a sin offering, God condemned sin. What is sin? Sin is, is anything you do that is not in accordance with with. God's will, it, it's describing power, it's describing impulses 
where you refuse to love and obey God, where someone says, I will not love Jesus, I will not obey God. You know, you hear the gospel and, and you hear that you need to turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Jesus took your penalty, he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day. He is coming back, he's coming back with blessing for believers and judgment for unbelievers. And you hear that message and you say, I don't want that, I don't need that, I'm good on my own, that's sin. But it's also sin when, when you have something right before you and you know you shouldn't say it, you know you shouldn't do it, you know you shouldn't engage in it, and you go ahead and do it, and you know it's against God's will, and you know it's against God's best design, and you still do it. It's your thoughts and your words and your actions that spring up following the impulse to refuse to love and obey God. And, and the good news for us is that Jesus fully identified with sinful human beings by taking on sinful flesh, fully sinless himself, impeccable, unable to sin, and God condemns sin in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross by condemning Christ instead of condemning us. That is substitution. That's the best ever Christ condemned for us because only God can undo the effects of sin. Only God can, can do this. Only God can come up with that plan that is so perfect and, and sovereignly orchestrated, sending God the Son to die in our place. And that, my friends, is the ultimate display of the love of God for you. If you ever wonder if God loves you or not, Let's say you start doubting and you're like, all these things are happening in my life. All these trials, all these temptations. Remember that Christ was condemned for you. It is his ultimate display of love for you. God condemned perfect sinless Christ so that we, the sinful, could be set free to life. God condemned Christ for us so that we would be uncondemned and serve him freely. And so today, if, if, if it's true about you, and you know, wow, I have been changed by Jesus, just remember this, it's not because of your sincerity, it's because of Christ's substitution. You have been died for. You didn't hatch an ingenious plan. You were helpless. And Jesus, our condemnation-bearing substitute, died for us. Praise God. You have been set free by the Spirit, and you were died for. Don't ever forget that you were died for. Remembering Christ's substitution carries you through, through everything in life. Now let's look at verse 4, the third truth here. Because of all that, because we've been set free by the Spirit, because we've been died for, we can now obey God in the power of the Spirit. We can actually now obey God in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's purpose is very, very clear in verse 4. Very clear. Look at verse 4. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but the Spirit. What was the righteous requirement of the law? It was the kind of life that God's Moral law demanded. Just think with me for a moment of the Ten Commandments, okay? 
You might not be familiar with them. You might be familiar with them, but you know that God gave 10 commandments. Now, he gave a lot of other commands in Scripture, but just take the 10, the biggie 10 commandments from the Old Testament, okay? Jesus boiled those down into two, okay? And he said, here they are. Love God, love your neighbor. So just take that, that God's moral law demands you to love God and love your neighbor. Here's what you learn as you're going through Romans 8. It's fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ. In you. Now every unbeliever is still under condemnation unless they come to faith in Christ. But God has made a covenant with us who are in Christ. And his covenants are unilateral and irrevocable. He makes them, he does it, and it can't be changed. He spoke about it in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, he says, I will make a covenant with you. I will put my law within you. I will write it on your heart, and I will be your God, and they, you'll be my people. And I'll forgive your sins, and I'll remember your sin no more. So what happens is, that speaking of what God would do in Christ, now if you're in Christ, you actually can live up to God's standards. Now, you're no longer under the law's condemnation and penalty. The law that reflected God's moral character and will. In the Old Testament, genuine obedience to God was demanded and promised future. It was, it's realized in Christ. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I'm gonna give you a new heart. A new spirit I'm gonna put within you. I'm gonna remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Well, here's the truth. Only those who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, have received the power to obey God's commands. The Spirit is the reason for your freedom to obey God. You can now obey God if you're a Christian. And, and your holy life is produced by the Spirit. Now, Christians don't like to talk about having a holy life. I'm not going to stand up here and say I have a holy life. I feel like I'm unholy a lot of the time. You feel the same way about yourself. But you can probably look around and look at a fellow believer and go, wow, God is making you holy. God is at work in your life. Now, it's very popular nowadays, you know, you look at any blog and it's like, how messy my life is. Hey, everyone, how messy my life is, just like you. And we just like try to find the common ground. I get it, okay? My, my, my life is messy too, so is yours. But God is not in the process of making us messier. God is in process, in the midst of your messy life, of making you holier, more like Christ. And so your holy life is produced by the Spirit of God. It says that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. Key point here, it's passive. That's passive. The, the, the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us. So the meeting of the righteous requirement of the law, guess who does it? Take a wild, wild guess. Someone who's referred to 20 times in, in Romans 8. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, the righteous requirements of the law being met is done by the Spirit in the believer's life. F.F. Bruce put it this way, Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Spirit's producing his fruit in the life. 
reproducing those graces which were seen in perfection in the life of Christ. The end of verse 4 says, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's another key point. That's not a command. That's not a command right there. That is a, a fact true of all believers. Walk refers to a way of living. You could just say live according to the Spirit. It's what characterizes your life. This is why Ephesians 4.17 says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's why 1 John 1.7 says, if we walk or live in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So every true believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And every true believer will have the fruit of the Spirit shown out in their life. And so we are to live according to the Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and you are now able to do what you formerly could not do, which is obey God. Now, a lot of people get all sorts of weird thinking, and they, they think that if they try really, really hard and obey God, that they will be made right with God. That's getting the gospel backwards. It's because you have been made right with God, you are now able to fight sin and obey God. We, we live according to the Spirit, by the Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, given life by the Spirit, rescued by the Spirit, sanctified by the Spirit. And so when it says here that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, the actual obedience of Christians the concrete obedience of Christians to the word of God is in mind. So the, the new birth in Christ put you into a relationship with the triune God and the Holy Spirit works it out. It's like this. Faith in Christ's work, his finished work on the cross, is required for our justification. And faith in the power of the Spirit is required for our sanctification. The Spirit gives us power to live our new life. You're not under a law as a code, but your life is to be so in line with God that he fulfills, you fulfill what he requires. You live out what he requires because a holy life is the product of the Holy Spirit. A holy life is the product of the Holy Spirit. Christ died for you and rose again so that you would live a life pleasing to him. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. He died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. You notice that your active engagement is in that, and that as a Christian is actively engaged in obeying God, the Spirit of God is enabling them to actually do it. We are now able to obey God as we trust the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this is where a lot of Christians also get very confused by wrong thinking or even false teaching. I like how someone put it. Walking by the Spirit is not some mystical experience. Rather, this occurs when the Spirit of God fills our hearts with love and gratitude to God for His love in Christ, and we express that by fulfilling God's law, also known as obeying God's word. You can now obey God. You are not perfect, but the perfect one lives in you. The perfect one lives in you. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit. Be continually filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. It's synonymous with Colossians 3.16, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, saturating your soul and living in constant awareness of God's presence, his reality, letting his word govern your thoughts and your words and your actions. And, and if, you have to, if you ask yourself, am I living by the Spirit? Ask yourself this question. How am I relating to, how am I responding to trials and temptations? What's going on in my life right now? Am I trusting God as I deal with trials and temptations? Am I living by the Spirit? Am I trusting the Spirit of God to help me obey God? Um, think about it this way. The Spirit of God should affect your ethics. The Spirit of God should affect your bioethics. The Spirit of God should affect your relationships. The Spirit of God should affect your worship. Because if you're now able to obey God, it's because the Spirit lives in you. It's not because there was anything praiseworthy about you. It's all because there's everything praiseworthy about Jesus. And if you're, if you're now able to obey God, don't ever start thinking, wow, something is really special about me. I must be better than other people. You should think of yourself as the worst among sinners and just gratefully worship God with your whole heart. As we close, I just want to tell you next week we're going to see this. That we're going to see a direct connection between living and thinking. Between living by the Spirit and actually how you think. Uh, in coming weeks, we're going to see more about life in the Spirit. How our, our life and our hope are anchored in the Spirit of God. We are obligated to the Spirit of God. We are children of God by the Spirit. We are heirs of God by the Spirit. We, we, we see Christ's magnificent glory by the Spirit. But you also see that you have to go through groaning. Okay? Groaning and then final glory will come. And let me just close with this thought. Let me remind you what I said last week. Romans 8 is a love note from God to you. It, it is mercy. It is a sheer, uh, beautiful, unadulterated display of God's grace and mercy towards you. It is an undisputed word from the king. And Lord, we thank you that you condemned sin by condemning Christ for our sins so that we could freely serve you. Thank you that you freed us from slavery. Thank you that you, you died for us. Thank you that we are now able to obey you. And we know we didn't come up with some perfect plan. Uh, the common theme is our inability and your action on our behalf. And so, Lord, we, we've heard the word. We, we, we want to act upon it. We, we want to live according to the Spirit. We want to, to trust you in conscious awareness of who you are and what you want as revealed in your word. And we want to do it by the power of the Spirit. And so we ask you, Lord, to use us in that way for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please